Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to Red Flags, a true crime podcast where we talk a little bit about cases that are current and a little bit about cases that have haunted us for years. I'm Tori Telfer. And I'm Karina Michelle. And later on in this episode, we're going to dive into the very complicated case of Moochie Bailey. And we're going to hear from the amazing writer, Isaac J. Bailey, who is close to this case in a significant and tough way. But Tori, before we get to that, I think we should talk about the biggest true crime news that broke over the holiday break. Yes which is the passing of the most prolific serial killer in the U.S., Samuel Little. Wow. In 2014, Samuel Little was arrested for the murder of three women. And in Mm -hmm. 2018, a Texas ranger named James Holland befriended him and got him to confess to 90 more killings. Wow. According to the Washington Post, he passed away on December 30th in a California hospital His cause of death at the time of recording this has not been confirmed, but he Mm -hmm. did have some health problems such as diabetes and other ailments. So we had mentioned a couple episodes ago that we were going to read the three-part Washington Post series and talk Mm -hmm. about it. It was weird to get the news that he had passed away because Mm -hmm. I feel like Karina and I were gearing up to sort of discuss it and I sort of forgot that he was in a cell somewhere. Mm -hmm. you know, like still around. I think when a serial killer dies, it's a very complicated moment. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't necessarily know how to react. Of course, it feels crass to celebrate, which people did when Ted Bundy was electrocuted, by the way. People made signs and had barbecues. People took their children so that they could learn about what happens when you do awful things. vengeance is served. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So we don't like that approach. 
But at the same time, I mean, this was a terrible person who did Mm -hmm. terrible things. But then there's also the thought of the secrets he has taken to his grave. Yeah. I mean, the man knew so much. He had a photographic memory, didn't Mm -hmm. he? Yeah, he did. Yeah, he was an artist, too. So he Mm. drew a lot of his victims. And when he kind of knew their names, he would write them down, too. But there's still some of his victims who have not been identified. Yeah. I mean, my understanding is that he confessed all he remembered to James Holland. So at Mm -hmm. least that is over, kind of. But, I mean, we don't know. He could have re-remembered things or... There's just a lot of families out there who are literally wondering if their loved one was a Samuel Little victim. And it's heartbreaking to think that his death could make it so that they're never going to find out. Mm -hmm. It's really disturbing to think that Samuel Little was murdering victims from 1970 to 2005. And it took until 2018 for him to confess to these 93 victims. I know. It's so weird that he was one of those. You know how everyone's like, there were so many serial killers in the 70s and 80s. Like, that's Mm -hmm. a fact we all know. And he was one of them, but we didn't know it until fairly recently. And so it's like there were decades where we were all just chirping on about how there was this spate of serial killing in the 70s and 80s because Bundy and because Gacy, you know, and it's like there was the most prolific one of all, like, was among us still, and we had no idea. I mean, isn't that so creepy? I think it's because of the type of victims that he chose, too. He did Mm -hmm, pick women who were marginalized, who were homeless, who were prostitutes, where a lot of these cases were closed as accidental or as an accidental overdose or undetermined, but... It is heartbreaking also to know that because of the type of victim that he chose and how these women lived, they didn't get the attention that they deserved. And he was so aware of that. It's like mm-hmm. he—it's not like, oh, he, he conveniently didn't get caught because he happened to prefer this type of victim. Yeah. He was so intentional. I mean, there's a chilling quote uh, from him in the, that three-part Washington Post series we've been talking about mm-hmm. where he says— I'm not going to go over there into the white neighborhood and pick out a little teenage girl. Mm -hmm. Like, he knows what types of victims are going to get the media attention, get the resources, and get him caught, and what types of victims no one's going to notice or no one's going to care, and he can just keep doing his thing. I mean, he reminds me a lot of Gary Ridgway in that way, Mm -hmm. the Green River killer, who also very intentionally went after sex workers and was also, I think, so aware of— what he wanted to do, and what types of people he could kill to enable him to do it. It's really sad. There was this quote from him in 60 Minutes, which to me was the most disturbing, where he's talking about his victims, and he says, they was broke and homeless, and they walked right into my spider web. Yeah, that's a horrifying image, because the the spider doesn't even have to go out and find its victims, right? Mm -hmm. It just sits there and waits. Mm -hmm. And the fact that he identifies with that is uh, bone-chilling. Yeah. So Samuel Little actually told 60 Minutes that he hoped that his confession could help exonerate anyone who is wrongly convicted of his crimes. Mm -hmm. And he also added, I say if I can help get somebody out of jail, you know, then God might smile a little bit more on me. A little bit more, Sam? Yeah. I don't don't know about that. (laughs) Um, Yeah, but uh, it's—I mean, it is— tough to think that there could be people right now sitting in prison for Mm -hmm. murders that Samuel Little committed. 
We definitely know of two cases, one where a man named Jerry Frank Townsend was jailed for 22 years, and the case against him fell to pieces, and then we later found out that Little had actually been the murderer in that case. And there's another case, the 1984 murder of Willa May Bivens near Tallahassee. According to an anonymous member of law enforcement who spoke to the Washington Post, Little is a solid match for that case as well. In that case, another man named Eddie Daniel Harris pleaded no contest to manslaughter and was later released after multiple commitments to a mental hospital. So that's two that we are aware of, but I mean, there could be more. And yeah, I just imagine that with Samuel Little dead, all that is going to be more complicated. If you want to learn more about the Samuel Little case, we really recommend the two-part ID series, The 93 Victims of Samuel Little, which you can stream on the just-launched Discovery Plus as well. Yes, and you can also read the three-part Washington Post series we keep mentioning. It's called Indifferent Justice. And then talk to us about it. We want to know your thoughts on the case. We want to know your reactions. Like, how do you feel and react when a famous serial killer dies? It's a very weird place to be in. Give us a call. Um, Our number is 888-9-R-E-D-F-L-A. That's 888-973-3352. Call me. For me, Tori, the death of Samuel Little brought a lot of the same emotions that I had while I was listening to the interview that you're about to present. I feel like I have to reserve all sense of empathy and emotion towards victims and their families. And I think it's important to also offer some of that emotion towards perpetrators and their loved ones. Are you saying like you want to be happy that he died, but also you feel weird about being happy about a death? I think the norm in the true crime world is to not feel bad for these perpetrators Mm -hmm. because they're so awful that they deserve whatever happens to them and worse. But I think that as a human, there is a part of me that feels weird about celebrating someone's death. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So let's get into the story we're about to talk about. And I just want to be very clear. I mean, we were chatting about a serial killer. We're now going to talk about a perpetrator who is in no way in the league Mm -hmm. of Samuel Little. So, like, let's make a sharp break here. One of the hardest things about this, especially saw that very, that early on, is that essentially that um, you are blamed for sort of what your sibling did. We're going to hear the story of Moochie Bailey, and we're going to hear from his brother, Isaac J. Bailey. And one of the points that Isaac makes and that I think Karina and I have like viscerally experienced while working on this episode is that not only are crimes complicated, it's Mm -hmm. never as simple as victim versus perpetrator, good versus evil, you know, Mm -hmm. very black and white two-sided issues. Things are complicated. Things are messy. People need empathy and grace and mercy on all sides. And not only is that true, but it's important. We need to be able to accept that things are complicated and sort of hold it all in our hands at the same time. And according to Isaac, that's really the only way we're going to move forward. So let's get into the story. We're going to hear from Isaac J. Bailey. 
And I know you've started reading his book, is that right? Yes. 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 So let me tell you a little bit about him, even though you might already know. He is a very successful writer and journalist. He was a Neiman Fellow for Journalism at Harvard in 2014. And he's got two books out. One just came out this October. It's called Why Didn't We Riot? A Black Man in Trumpland. And then his earlier book, which... I've read and Karina is currently reading is My Brother Muchi, Regaining Dignity in the Face of Crime, Poverty, and Racism in the American South. So Isaac's family is the family of a perpetrator. Mm-hmm. And we're going to get into what that looks like. We're going to get into the trauma that causes. Isaac himself has had this very successful career, but he also suffered from PTSD and a stutter that was made a lot worse when this incident that we're about to explore happened to his family. Mm-hmm. You're about to hear a deep dive into this story, and then, you know, this is going to raise a lot of questions, and we'll talk about them afterwards. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bombas socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Isaac J. Bailey has a vivid childhood memory. He's six years old, standing in the kitchen, watching his father beat his mother. This is not the first or the last time that this has happened, and there are a lot of complicating factors that lead to this moment. Isaac's mom was only 13 when she was forced to marry his much, much older father. That's one trauma. But his father was traumatized too, a black man descended directly from slaves who grew up during the horrors of the Jim Crow era. 
Now they live in a tiny town in South Carolina called St. Stephen, and they don't have very much money, and all of these hardships and traumas and systemic issues are feeding into the violence that Isaac is witnessing that night. And Isaac is so little that he's afraid to do anything, but he feels guilty about that, and then... Someone runs into the kitchen and saves him. His big brother, Muchi. Muchi flings himself onto their father and physically pulls him off of their mother. It's going to be okay, at least for now. Muchi is there, Isaac's hero. Like, he was like Superman, essentially. Uh, at least, like, actually for us. Uh, my aunt, because, like, he was, like, big and strong and fast. He was a football player. He was a basketball player. He was, um, he was like, very, very outgoing. He was, like, actually stronger than every other bully on the block. He could, like, actually just keep bullies away from us. Literally. Uh, like, which is very helpful. Muchi was the coolest. He promised his little brothers that he was going to turn them into the next Jackson 5. He took them on fast car rides and kept the whole family afloat with checks from odd jobs and a time in the army. But he had his own demons. PTSD from that same time in the army, the trauma of dealing with an abusive father who would beat him too, and a streak of bad behavior that was growing worse and worse. He was taking pills, growing weed, getting arrested for petty theft, mugging women. Their mother was worried, but when she tried to consult with professionals, they told her that this was just a rebellious phase. And then, in April of 1982, when Muchi was 22, he robbed a white man named James Bunch. Muchi was arrested. And at some point, one of Muchi's friends whispered to him that he really needed to, quote, take care of Mr. Bunch in order to avoid more jail time. Muchi had been drinking, taking drugs, and his friend's message really stuck in his head. So a few days later, he confronted James Bunch at his house, demanding that he drop the robbery charge. James refused. The two men started fighting, and then Muchi began stabbing James. James' blood splattered five feet up the walls. James managed to make his way out into the yard while his house went up in flames behind him. Muchi told police that he'd been trying to hide the evidence, but later he told his cellmate that the fire was an accident. A lamp fell over during the fight, he said. James Bunch was dead by the time an ambulance got him to the hospital. I'm like late one night where she noticed that Muchi sort of actually snuck back into the house and then she ran like into the bathroom I mean, he actually changed clothes, then he ran back out. Shortly after that, it's like, I don't know, like it was just like a couple hours later, et cetera, or like whatever, where she had like all of these cops like in our front yard, et cetera. Um, so like actually looking for him later on that uh, I would find out like he had sort of like actually murdered a man. The police wouldn't tell the Bailey family why they were looking for Muchi, but they told them that it was, quote, real serious. Later that night, the police caught up with him. And just like that, Superman was gone. He was drunk and also sort of uh, on sort of drugs that night. That one night, like, it actually changed, like, everything, like, in our family, like, and also actually for the victim's family as well. Muchi pled guilty and was sentenced to life in prison. James Bunch's sisters mourned the violent death of their beloved brother, but for the Baileys, things were trickier. They couldn't mourn Muchi. They weren't allowed to. 
They'd lost a brother, too, but he was a murderer, and that seemed to overshadow everything. One of the hardest things about this, uh, especially so that very that early on, like is that essentially that uh, like you are blamed for sort of how, uh, like what your sibling did. Yes, like and sort of actually shamed, kind of like into silence. Uh, like what sort of like actually makes it hard for you to like actually reach out and like even mourn because that uh, even though that he had done this really really awful thing. And yet, though, that uh, at least for us, that we actually were like, actually like we, too, like actually were like actually losing this sort of uh, like, pillar I mean, like like of our family. And yet, though, if we ever said that out loud or like anybody. Like we sort of actually would be accused of excusing his crime almost, which makes it like really, really impossible, uh, at least like in. Uh, at least to actually reach out, actually for help. We actually desperately needed help, too. They needed counseling to help them deal with the fact that their beloved brother and son had done something terrible. They needed money to help with the fact that Muchi's paychecks were gone. They needed grace. Isaac had already been struggling with a stutter, and seeing his hero brother thrown into prison for life made his stutter worse. His mother was sitting on the sofa for hours, not speaking his little brothers were turning to crime themselves. They were all painfully aware that James Bunch's family was in agony. Isaac's mom even went to his funeral, but they couldn't find any relief for their own pain. In the world of criminal justice, families like the Baileys are the invisible ones, and siblings like Isaac are the invisible of the invisible. When people bother to research the families of the incarcerated, 80% of that research never even asks how the brothers and sisters are coping. But these families, and these brothers and sisters, can be desperate for help. Studies have shown that the families of the incarcerated often need assistance with basic things like food and shelter. They need help maintaining a connection with their incarcerated relative. And children who experience a family member's incarceration can have health problems, which causes additional financial strain on the family and on society. One study estimated that in the U.S., these, quote, indirect costs of experiencing a family member's incarceration cost $22.5 billion during adulthood and $346 million during childhood. So this should be everybody's problem. But when it came to the Bailey family... No one cared about what they were going through. Isaac even got the sense that people wanted them to suffer. Their neighbors refused to testify about the fact that they knew Muchi. People would say things like, well, if Muchi didn't want you to suffer, he shouldn't have committed a crime. There was a whole lot of, we're praying for you, but no one would speak up for them in public. The shame of Muchi's crime had fallen onto the entire Bailey family. And since he was a young black man who was now a violent criminal, no one was interested in seeing him as anything other than that. Bottom line, like nothing else matters. Even though that I can like actually go back in detail, like our sort of like struggles with sort of like poverty and racism, like like and also uh, domestic violence and like so many things. Like Muchi himself, who actually sort of actually got, uh, like he was like actually beaten a whole lot as well. Actually, he was growing up. He actually sort of actually stayed. I mean, like in like the like, army, like only for like one year, uh, simply because like of some uh, uh, what we now know, like actually was or like PTSD, et cetera. 
all that they want to know, like all that they want to talk about is that in April of 1982 that he did this evil thing. For a very, very long time, too, that that is how our family was viewed. Also, if you are a Black family, like on sort of a, like this side of the crime issue, when you are essentially the Black sheep of the Black sheep, you sort of like actually have have sort of actually proven like the kind of that stereotype of sort of like black people and violence. Yes. And so like essentially we actually get it, of course, like actually from like the white racists, like and also from the criminal justice system. And also sort of actually from like the public at large. And also like frankly from sort of like many black people like who are ashamed that we are black. 25 years after Muchi was arrested, Isaac himself was diagnosed with a case of PTSD. For years, he'd been struggling with violent, intrusive thoughts. Sometimes they got so bad that he'd have to leave the room because he was so afraid that he'd actually hurt his wife and children. At least like in part that uh, like my like my sort of uh, my current day struggle, so actually with my stutter even today, kind of like is sort of actually linked back uh, I mean, at least like actually uh, uh, to those events and sort of uh, I mean, how it is that we were like actually treated afterwards. Yes. And then so like essentially once this kind of thing happens, it actually it actually never leaves you. It was his therapist who suggested that he write a book about Muchi. And it was the process of writing a book that made him confront the fact that Muchi was definitely guilty. Isaac had always held out hope that his big brother was secretly innocent, but also that Muchi was so much more than his worst act. It was a complex knot of guilt and blood and race and generational trauma. Muchi had done something awful, but he was still human. Yes, and I think that like there sort of actually has been this um, conflation between revenge and justice like in our country, especially when it comes to violent crime. Essentially, kind of like if somebody does something violent, we actually think that justice means finding them and then like actually locking them up like forever, like or sort of like actually sort of even sort of like actually killing them, like mm-hmm. in turn, trying to actually treat them as that like, harshly as possible, even if this sort of uh, affects their family, like in a profound way, who cares? In 2005, while working on the book, Isaac met with the sisters of the man his brother had killed. So, like, at first, like, I sort of actually had this kind of vision, like, this hope we all would like actually finally sort of, like, actually get together and, and like, sort of actually cry together on Oprah's show or something like that. Yes, you know, like, yeah. come by, uh, et cetera, like, all those sort of things. <laughs> yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I mean, but that, uh, that did not happen. James Bunch's family admitted that they no longer thought of the entire Bailey family as monsters, but they still wanted Muchi to stay in prison forever, and they asked Isaac to never contact them again. So it was a complete shock when, nine years later, Isaac got the sort of text from his sister that he never thought he'd see. It read, They gave Muchi parole. After over 32 years in prison, his brother was out. Isaac still doesn't know what exactly changed, but he suspects that James Bunch's family showed his brother mercy. 
One year ago, Muchi got off probation. He's now fully free. He's getting counseling and assistance through Veterans Affairs, and he's actually starting to write, just like Isaac had to do. All of those factors together, like, it just makes it really, really difficult to sort of actually navigate, like, life. Yeah. It sounds like there's nowhere you can turn. I mean, if you're getting it from all sides like that. Yes, yes. Where do you even go if you need someone to listen to you? Or Exactly, yes, exactly, yes. I guess you have to take your story into your own hands. Yes, <laughs> exactly. It, right? Yes, exactly. So, Karina, I'm curious... What was it like for you hearing the story of the family of a perpetrator? It was really interesting, but also so heartbreaking because this is a side of the story that we rarely get to hear. Mm-hmm. And it's really difficult to listen to them share about the lack of resources and they just don't receive help in any way. Yeah, that was one of the most heartbreaking parts for me, too, is like how they were just getting it from all sides. Like no mm-hmm. one was there for the Bailey family and how it wasn't just that people didn't help them, but people actively wanted them to suffer. Mm-hmm. Um, it's something Isaac mentioned when we talked. It's like you would like to think you wouldn't be so cruel if someone you knew had something like this happen in their family. Mm-hmm. There's also this sense of taboo of even talking about your loved one in any sense. I know that in the book, Isaac mentions it wasn't even that he couldn't talk about the horrific act. It was that he also couldn't talk about his brother in a good way. He couldn't talk about the hero that he was and the good things that he did for his family. Right, because then people would think he was excusing the crime or, you know, everyone just wanted to reduce Muchi to this one thing. And and if you say anything positive about him, that was interpreted as, like, forgiving everything else. Yeah, Other than Isaac's book, and and Isaac's book has a very unique perspective, I watched the show Evil Lives Here from ID, and in it you have family members of perpetrators talk about their experience and share their pain, and you can really tell how their lives are changed forever. Yeah, I know on the show, those crimes are a bit different, right? It's it's often like the perpetrator is violent towards the family, which Mm -hmm. is a different thing. But you see that even in those cases, there's a lot of shame on the family and people are judgmental, even if the family is sort of directly victimized by their own family member. Yeah. And I think being a part of the true crime world... I talk to a lot of people who are also into true crime, and Mm -hmm. the number one reason that I always hear why everyone is into true crime is because they want to know how a serial killer thinks. Like, they want to understand the psychology, why they got to this point. But I think this is one of those cases that clearly shows you why someone got to this point. It shows Mm -hmm. you how coming from poverty and difficulty and a home where— it's not stable where you see a lot of violence, the effects that that can Mm -hmm. have. And I think that that social aspect, it's sometimes so obvious that those are things that lead to crime, Mm -hmm. but we try to find a deeper meaning or take it all back to nature versus nurture. Yeah, it's easier to just think that people commit crimes because they're evil, full Mm -hmm. stop. Yeah. And because society has harmed them in in many different ways or let them down. (laughs) 
Tori, on episode one, we talked about the murder of Bianca Devins and how her family mm-hmm. wants to get Bianca's law passed. This legislation will require that all social media platforms with more than $10 million in revenue and more than 100,000 monthly users establish an office that's dedicated to identifying and removing violent content that violates the Ooh. platform. So one of the biggest issues in this case is that Social media platforms like Instagram, they didn't have the manpower to monitor and see who was posting this horrific picture. And Mm -hmm. one of the things that it would require is to have a whole team that is solely dedicated to doing this. Oh, yes. I mean, it's about time. Yeah, I think that social media is definitely wild, wild west right now. And I think Mm -hmm. that there needs to be more regulation. Mm -hmm. I actually spoke to Bianca Devin's mom, Kim. I asked her if there was anything else that we could do, and she actually told me that the law has been introduced, and she wants to encourage listeners to call your representatives and ask them to support Bianca's law to ensure that it gets passed. To contact your representative, call the U.S. Congress switchboard at 202-224-3121. We will also make sure to have a short script of what you can say in the show notes. And I want to thank you in advance for calling. It takes two seconds, but I think it can make a huge difference. It really does. And we know we're all, you know, none of us like making phone calls these days, but the script is going to make it really easy for you, we promise. Thank you all so much for listening, and extra thanks to Isaac J. Bailey for coming on the podcast and telling us his story. For more true crime conversations, be sure to check out ID on Twitter at Discovery ID or on Instagram and TikTok at Investigation Discovery. And you can ask us questions on our own Instagram feeds too. I'm at Tori underscore underscore Telfer. And I am at the Karina Michelle. Thanks for listening today. Red Flags is a production of Investigation Discovery and Audiation. For ID, our executive producers are Amy Angelowitz, Jessica Lowther, and Marissa Lucy. For Audiation, our executive producers are Sandy Smallins and Michael Wolfson. Mark Lotto is our story editor. Ireland Meacham is our producer. And Brad Stratton is our editor-mixer. Theme music by Marty Beller. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.